Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So, it looks like we made it through another holiday season. Right? Barbara has all the decorations packed away. She sneaks in like Grinch, you know, and puts all the stuff on. I try to wrestle her, but she's pretty strong. She might not look it, but... <laughs> and plus, I've broken most of my New Year's resolutions, so here we go, right? There we are. So we got these, these um, time-honored holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, um, represent a lot of tradition in our families and uh, honored traditions have got a lot of good food, a lot of good fun. Speaking of food, something else that those holidays offer us? Leftovers, exactly right. So leftovers, a.k.a. the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? It's all about a matter of perspective and how you look at things. Um, so um, one night, um, a family that shall be named Nameless um, sat down to uh, uh, another round of leftovers, and the daughter looked displeased. So maybe the dad <clears throat> asked the daughter to uh, say some sort of blessing, and she said, well, you know, a blessing of thanksgiving should have been. And she said something to the effect of, dear God, thank you for this food again, right? <laughs> Or the time the pastor sat down and the family reminded him that, you know, we should uh, say a blessing before we, um, before we partake. And the pastor looked at the food and said, well, if you can show me something that hasn't been prayed over twice already, uh, I can't see what one more prayer is going to do for any of this. But, but leftovers can be a good thing, right? For convenience sake, if nothing else. Oftentimes I cook too much food just so we can have a, an easy meal later, maybe for a lunch. But the problem with it is always um, reheating things. You know, like, like that Thanksgiving turkey. You guys could probably help me out with this, but I don't know. There's something about when that turkey hits the fridge, it just is not the same to me. When I was a kid, I used to lay down a real thick layer of Miracle Whip. Who's with me on the Miracle Whip, right? Lay that turkey in there and bite that white bread, get stuck to the roof of your mouth. You know what I'm talking about, right? But it's more about the Miracle Whip than the turkey. I used to have Miracle Whip and lettuce sandwiches, just to put it in perspective. But all right, that's another story. But the problem with leftovers is reheating them. One morning or one lunch, I had um, of helping a spaghetti or leftovers of spaghetti, and I put them in a frying pan in olive oil. And so basically, I'm frying the spaghetti. Bethy came over and was like, I am not eating your fried spaghetti, which again was basically what it was. But when you put it in the microwave, man, I got a dilemma with the microwave. You put it in the microwave, and it comes out like the temperature of the sun, and 15 seconds later, it's basically lukewarm, and, and I don't really want to eat it. So I don't know. It's, it's just a you know, never ending battle. But that idea of leftovers isn't only about um, food. Leftovers can go into other areas and other aspects of our lives. Um, Husbands and wives work very hard and then come home and give each other kind of some leftover time. And, And parents work hard and sometimes they play even harder and then kids are left with those scraps of of leftover time. And so leftovers um, out of the fridge can become tiresome. But leftovers in our relationships um, can lead to disappointment. But if we use the word leftover when we're talking about our relationship with God, it can be downright dangerous. When we're talking about leftovers to describe our worship, it's downright dangerous. Now, believe it or not, Jesus talks about this at great length. 
Um, and now when you think, when Jesus is talking, you think, well, you're going to think Gospels, right? But um, if you look at the first, uh, or after chapter 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, if you've got a, a red letter Bible, it's going to be all red because that's all Jesus talking. And if you want to have a theological debate about that, I'll, I'll bring that on later on. But that's what it is. So, okay, so um, we're going to look at the book of Revelation. We're going to look at verse, I'm sorry, chapter 3. And we're going to talk about um, what Jesus is saying here. So let's take a look at it real quick. Verse 14. It says, To the angel of the, tur- of the church at, are you ready for this? Ladikaya. Everybody say, Ladikaya. I know. You don't know how much money I paid so that I could pronounce these words correctly. I'm going to get my money's worth out of it today. Sometimes we say a lot of sea or something like that, but it's Ladikaya. Uh, so this verse, this is uh, the voice of Jesus talking here. So he says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, he said, write this. These are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Man, Jeff, get up here. We're going to write a song about this real quick. I mean, this is just poetry, just jumping off the page at us. So again, this is Jesus' voice talking to us, right? To the, to the angel, the leader of that church of, of Laodicea. So look at verse 15. Jesus says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So Jesus really knows how to speak our language. Not just the English or Japanese or whatever language you speak. He knows how to talk to you in ways that you can relate to. This is a book of Revelation that John wrote way back in the day, right? In about the year 90. So we don't really understand exactly what Jesus is talking about here. So we're going to shed some light on this. Not as, um, as a historical lesson, but we're going to look at this as ways that we can apply what Jesus is talking about here. How can we apply this to our lives? And I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it to you. It's not only that big part of your life, but it's those little parts of your lives, those different aspects of your lives. How can we apply God's truth to every aspect of our lives? So let me back up just a little bit, give you some personal history here. So when we lived in Japan, I got to um, travel all over the country in big cities, small cities, Big islands, small islands, all over the place. And one of the major um, common denominators, I guess I, sh- I should say there, are the onsens that they have there, the, the hot spring, the hot tubs, right? They've actually built hotels over the top of these things. So you have a regular you know, five-star hotel, and then you go down what you think is going to be the basement. It's actually a cave down there. That's, all the stuff is still in its natural state, and you got all these hot tubs, all these onsens down there. Okay, so um, just like that, in the area that we're going to be talking about today, which is now modern-day Turkey, actually, I've got a map of it. Let's take a look at that map here real quick. So um, you see uh, Ladikaya there, and you see where we are. So this is modern-day Turkey. Now, there's a lot of seismic activity in this region, right? A lot of um, earthquake kind of stuff going on, just like Japan. And just like Japan, um, hot springs would, would spring up at different places, but not at Ladikaya. But yes, in this city uh, that's a little above it, uh, it says Heropolis. Uh, my dot is almost covering it. But Heropolis had hot springs there. And people would come from all over the world, or the known world, you know what I'm saying, to that area because they thought that those, um, healing, those hot waters had healing medicinal purposes or medicinal properties, healing properties. 
So now if you look down also at the city of Colossae that you've heard of, because that's where Paul, the, where Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians. In Colossae, now they didn't have hot water, hot springs there. They had unusually cold water springs, fresh water springs. So people would go to Heropolis for those hot water springs. People would go to Colossae for their cold water springs. Now, I don't need to tell you or maybe remind you that this is way before the days of refrigerators or ice makers. So a cool, refreshing either plunge, like the polar plunge. I never really got that, but hey, the polar plunge or nice, just a cool glass of water, they would go to Colossae. Okay, so now Jesus is setting the stage um, to get his point across to the people at Latikaya, or um, nearly, so um, it's the it was the biggest city, and the richest city in that region, mostly of the of the known world at that time. It was huge. It was the, it was the kind of the seat of everything, and it was growing so fast. It didn't really have uh, unusually, but it didn't really have a water supply to it. And the city was outgrowing their water supply. So they thought, well, what we're going to do is we're going to pipe in. They couldn't pipe water in from Colossae because it was too low in elevation. And Rome figured out some ways to do things, but this is unheard of. This would, this would take pumps to do this. But Heropolis was possible. So they got this great engineering feat, and they brought in water from Heropolis. And they thought, well, not only will we have this water coming in to supply the city, but we're going to have this hot water. Well, it wasn't hot after it went six miles through these pipes that, again, it was quite a construction project, quite a feat that they did at that time. But it wasn't hot when it got there. It was, it was lukewarm when it got there. And not only that, it had a bad smell to it. Think of that sulfur kind of smell when you get things like that. So it had this, and it made people nauseous just to smell it. No one wanted to drink it because of how bad it tasted. So again, setting the stage for what Jesus says here in verse 16. He says, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That message carried a strong punch to them, and they could relate to it. Jesus is telling them that their spiritual life um, looks, smells, tastes lukewarm, and nobody wants it. And actually, that word says where I'm going to spit you out is actually a word for vomit. So we're kind of being polite here, but it's going to come out, you know, whether we like it or not, it's going to come out. And Jesus says, I don't want any part of that. Sometimes we look at this and we say, you know, is our relationship with God hot or cold? But that's not what he's saying here. He's talking about those other regions. Hot water has its purpose. Cold water has its purpose. You guys, he's saying, don't have a purpose, and that's because you are just so lukewarm. You're not going either way. You're not going anywhere. Now, do understand, though, that Jesus is not rejecting them. He's not rejecting them. He, but um, it does paint a picture of how Jesus feels when we're, um, when we're spiritually lukewarm to him and, and literally um, giving him only the leftovers in our lives, the leftover time, the leftover thought, the things like that. Um, with the way the world is looking right now, you know, the world's not the way we all want it to be. So a lot of people are, are pulling even further away from God rather than looking towards him, rather than giving him more. It's like we're giving him less and expecting more out of it. I'm not sure exactly how that's working, but um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But that's how God feels. This sentence right here, this verse right here, is, is how um, he feels when we have that lukewarm relationship with him. Um, and this is how he feels um, getting the scraps and the leftovers of our life, of our time, of our worship, and things like that. But even after that, let's take that one down. But even after that, and in hearing those words from Jesus' mouth, um, there's still hope. 
I'm going to spare you some of the, of the verses that, that come up. But we are going to say the ball is still in your court. But the next verses say that Jesus um, says, you think you have what you need and you think you have it all together. But really, he uses words like wretched. He says, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're blind, you're poor, and you're naked. That's what he, the words that he uses to describe us when we're lukewarm, when we're staying over kind of on the sidelines. But again, it's not too late. And Jesus says, I've got you. And he says it right after this. So uh, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Behold, right? Biblical word for check it out. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, if who? Anyone. Any kind of contingency there? Any kind of prerequisite? No, he says, if anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and I will dine with him and he with me. That word dine is a rather unique word um, in the Bible. We only see it a couple of times. Um, The only other place we see this word Now, we see meals happening all the time, but the only other place we see this word dine um, is in the setting with the Last Supper. And the significance of this, now we say, okay, he's going to come down and he's going to sit with me. We're going to have Thanksgiving together. We're going to have Christmas dinner. We're going to have New Year's dinner. Jesus is saying, you are thinking way too small. That word dine, he uses that word for a specific purpose. And like I said, I'm going to show you the two other places that we see it. But first, before I show you where, where we see it, I'm going to show you the significance of why we see it. What this meal is going to look like and why Jesus is telling us this in the first place. Look at Luke 22, verse 19. So this is during the Last Supper. This is during the Lord's meal, right? It says, He, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying this. He said, This is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And just in case you think that's an outliner, take a look at 1 Corinthians 11.25. In the same way, after supper... Oh, I'm sorry, 11.24. My bad. We get 11.24 up there. Uh, and, he, and gave thanks, kind of a funny place to start this verse. Gave thanks to God for the bread. Then he broke the bread it in pieces and, say it, and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The purpose of this meal, the purpose of that dine we saw back there in Revelation, is to give his body for you. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door of their heart, I am going to give my body to you. He says dine, but look at the places we say it. Now look at this, is, I'm going to show you where we see that word. Uh, this is in verse 25. In the same way, after supper, that's where we see that word. Supper, to sup, right? He took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant. Sometimes we say the New Testament, same word, in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So he's saying these things. He's saying, I'm going to come in, I'm going to give myself to you. So that when we receive communion, 
And we hear those words, this is the body of Christ given for you. And remember, it's just a reminder of what he's already done and what he's already offered to us. And what's already a done deal. That's what he's going for here. And he says, all we have to do is open that door. Let's look back at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. If you'll open the door to your heart. Let me in. And we're not just sharing any old meal here, not even the best meal of the day or the year. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the Eucharist. It's not a meal of leftovers now, is it? How do you feel so far? But wait, there's more. If you act right now at no additional cost. Since Jesus says several times, This is my body given for you. Um, There's so much more that Jesus will grant you. He says so many times, this is my body given for you, but there's so much more that he will grant you. Again, this meal, the Eucharist that we're talking about here, is not the end game. And to be completely honest, it's not really the goal. It's a reminder of the goal. The Eucharist is not the end game. It's not the goal. It's a reminder of the goal. Why does he say do this in remembrance of me? So that we can remember what the goal is. Jesus says if you'll stop being distracted by the world and all the flimsy excuses you can muster to not be in his presence, which is only hurting you, by the way, if you can overcome the world and put your faith in Christ, the one who gave his life for you, he makes an incredible promise to you. I've got a quick illustration of that. I was going to do a children's sermon, but then I thought, you know what, I'm going to do it like this. Yikes. Okay. So the the jar is going to represent the world. The candle is going to represent you. Jesus says, go and be the light of the world. Right? Shine your light in the world. Easier said than done, right? Because what happens to us in the world? Things start to overcome us. And it's not always easy To keep our light shining, when we start to get flooded by things of the world, Jesus is very clear. He says, You're in this world, and you need to Keep your light shining in the world. You're not impressed? Well, how is this possible? You know how it's possible? We're in this world, but we're not of the world. So how do we do this? Yeah, thank you, right? I want to show you a couple other verses right now. Don't tell anybody. I'm going to do that at the second service. 
If we can overcome this world, and we can put our faith and our trust in the one who gave his life for you, he makes an incredible promise. I'm going to try to get through it. Let's put up verse 21, 321. To the one who what? Overcomes what? The world. Well, it's more than that. What? World, the lies. You know, we say the world and then we just kind of put that in that category. But the lies, you know, all the temptations that we have going on every day, all the things that distract us from him, distract us from our relationship with him, the things that cause us to give him the leftovers of our lives, that's what we have to overcome. Whatever that looks like in your world, and Satan makes it look different everywhere else. I said earlier that Jesus speaks our language. Well, Satan speaks it too. And he knows what distracts you, and he knows what you have to overcome, and that's what he's going to punch you in the face with. To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne. Are you kidding me? Has anybody ever told you that before? I will grant the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I myself overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To the one who overcomes. What does that look like? Well, part of it means answering the door when Jesus knocks on it. Opening the door of our heart and saying, you know what, I'm not sure exactly what this is going to look like, and I know I'm not going to be perfect at it every day, but I'm going to give this a shot. I'm going to give you more than the leftovers of my life. I'm going to give you more than the scraps that I give other things in other places. I'm going to make you a priority in my life. And that lukewarm attitude of ours goes away and is refreshed by something better, something new. And there's one key word in all of this. Boil it down to, go back to verse 20 for a second. Jesus says, Behold, I stand and knock if anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him. I will dine with him. I will remind him. We will share the Eucharist together, which is a reminder of what we saw in verse 21, that, oh, by the way, You know, we say, what's heaven going to be like? Well, you know what? We're going to be sitting with him on this throne. In the same way that he sits down with his father on his throne. If you'll open the door to your heart. If. Take a look at one other thing, and then I'm going to tell you what else we're going to do this morning. This is a painting from Warner Salmon from 1942. Do we have a picture of that? You guys know this one, right? And you know the significance of this, right? Jesus is knocking on the door. What's the significance of that door? There's no doorknob on his side. Signifying that you have that choice. God can't make you love him. God can't make you make him a priority in your life. If he could, that's not love. That's not a choice. That's not who we are. So he says, open that door. And when we do that, things start to change. He comes in and he shares a meal with us. Not just any old meal. The one to remind us of what is in store for us. And what's in store for us 
spot with him on his heavenly throne in his heavenly kingdom. Now I know that this is not a communion Sunday, but as I was looking at this early this morning, I thought, you know what, it doesn't make any sense to talk about all this and not receive communion together. So we're going to share the Apostles' Creed together, and then I'm going to come up and we're going to share the words of institution, and then we're going to receive communion together. It's not going to look like it usually does, but you know what, old school is kind of a fun way to do stuff. So would you please stand?